Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Kumail Nanjiani. Kumail is, of course, a stand-up comedian and an actor. He was born and raised in Karachi, Pakistan. He moved here to the United States at 18 to go to college. His career started first as a stand-up comic, a great stand-up comic. And he got his big break as an actor in 2014, when he was one of the stars of the hit show Silicon Valley. He played Dinesh. When I last talked to Nanjiani, it was 2017. Alongside his wife, Emily Gordon, he'd just written and directed his first film, The Big Sick. It's a beautiful, hilarious, wholly unique romantic comedy, and if you haven't seen it, you should. Lately, Kumail Nanjiani has been expanding his acting chops. He joined the cast of Marvel's Eternals in 2021. Now he's starring in the true crime drama Welcome to Chippendales. The show just wrapped up on Hulu. And a heads up, in case you haven't seen it, you will hear some very light spoilers in the first 10 minutes or so of this interview. Welcome to Chippendales. It's about, as you might have guessed, the Chippendales dancers, the hunks from the 80s who wore bow ties and cuffs and collars and did sensual dances. But the show is about two of the people behind the scenes, the two who created the concept, expanded the business, argued, and plotted against one another until things ended in tragedy. One is Nick DeNoia. He's a choreographer with a Broadway background, who, before he joined the Chippendales, had been working in children's television. He's played by Murray Bartlett, who you might know from White Lotus. The other is Soman Banerjee, or Steve, as he's known. He's played by my guest, Kumail Nanjiani. Steve immigrated from India to the United States as an adult, and when the show starts, he's working in a gas station. He has much, much bigger dreams. In this scene, Steve is meeting with the owner of the station in which he works. The owner had invited him over to give him a big promotion. And Steve's response was to let him know that he was quitting. I have no social life to speak of, sir. All I do is sleep and work. For food, I eat expired sandwiches from the station. If you have $44,000... That's nearly enough to own your own gas station. That's true. So why not just work with me for a few more years? Sir, I do not want a gas station. What do you mean you don't want a gas station? That was my dream when I came here. But that was seven years ago. My goals have changed. I have changed. Kumail Nanjiani, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Do you have the kind of simmering resentment inside of you that Steve has inside of him? I really don't. What I do have is a very baseline insecurity that I share with him, probably. And, you know, obviously, I did comedy for many years. There's a stereotype of like, you know, the sad clown. I never felt like that. I really don't. I mean, I have issues, you know. When I talk to my therapist, it's not like, oh, what are we going to talk about this week? There's always <laughs> there's always stuff to find, you know. I don't have that simmering resentment. But like I said, there's some baseline 
ways that he thinks about himself that I've thought about myself on my bad days. Like what? Not liking yourself, you know? I think Steve really, really, really doesn't like himself. He doesn't like being in his skin. And I've certainly had times where I've felt like that. And I still sometimes feel like that. And it takes a while to even realize that that's what that feeling is. It's just like, oh, this is what being a person is. And then you realize like, oh, no. There are specific ways that I think of myself and that I talk to myself that are very harmful and weigh on me in ways that I'm not aware of uh, just because it's happening all the time. So that that's something I share with Steve. I was watching the show and thinking about you and watching this guy and thinking like, you know, Kumail is not murderous as far as I know. Can you confirm that for me, Kumail? I have never murdered someone, and I promise you here on Bullseye, I will never murder anyone. Well, okay, so this is sort of a loophole thing because the character hires someone to murder someone. I will never hire someone to murder anyone. Okay, but Kumail is not a murderous man, known you for a long time, but you are an awkward nerd at heart. Yes. You are not just a first-generation immigrant, but a first-generation immigrant who came to the States as an 18-year-old, right? 18? Yes. As an 18-year-old by yourself, Mm -hmm. just off to college. Here we go, new country. Yeah, let's see what happens. And that combination is not nothing to have in common with someone. Oh, no, it's a big thing to have in common, yeah. Yeah, to come here and try and succeed in a world that is not made for your success. I completely understand that part of it. You know, his sort of, his ambition and my ambition do align, but hopefully not to the same degree. There's a specific part of the ambition too, which is that scene that we just heard in the show is him rejecting a classic first-generation immigrant narrative, which is, I will work impossibly hard in the lane which is set forth for me by, you know, people from my country that, or extended family that came here before, you know, like I'm Hmong, I'm going to move to Minneapolis, or I'm Cambodian in Los Angeles, and my extended family works in, you know, has donut stores, whatever it is, right, whatever the lane is. Right. It's your character rejecting that because he has this received vision of Americanness that he is thrilled by. And you have described to me before your relationship with America being completely defined by obsessive film and television watching. Correct. Yes. Which is like pretty, like Hugh Hefner is a little different from Arnold Schwarzenegger, but like... It's a pretty similar thing. <laughs> it is, yes, in some ways. I mean, his version of American success is very white and very, very specific. I never had like a version of American success in my head. My version of America came from movies and TV shows for sure. But I never had a version of, you know, I want to be that someday. I never... My ambition has never been very farsighted. It's sort of just like about the next thing. So I think that's where him and I differ. He has like a very specific white version of American success, and that's what he wants to achieve. 
for me, it was never that. I just, I kind of was mostly very, very adrift for the first few years in America uh, until the end of college. I genuinely had no idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. When you were in college, were you lonely? No, I felt lonely before college. People are surprised by this, but I'm very introverted. I'm very shy. And then over the years, I've learned to sort of fake it. But then quarantine and pandemic set me back to my natural state. And now I find it very difficult. I I can have a one-on-one conversation, a bigger group. I start to get nervous and it reminds me of how I used to feel when I was much younger. So I was very, 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 I felt very lonely up until college. And then I actually stopped feeling lonely kind of for the first time in my life. I went to Grinnell College, tiny school in Grinnell, Iowa. And I just suddenly found people that I could tell really liked me. And I think before that I'd convinced myself that people were just trying to be nice to me or something. I've reconnected with my friends from then, and it's been absolutely wonderful. But really in college was the first time in my life that I didn't feel lonely or weird in a way that, I know it's sort of cliche, everyone feels weird, but weird in a way that I didn't want to feel weird. Did you think when you moved to the United States that you were going to leave being weird behind because you were going to a new place where you could be a new thing? I felt like that. My last two years of high school in Pakistan, I was going to a different school. I sort of transferred, and I certainly felt that going into that, where I was like, I will not be weird now. I can be whatever I want to be. And then somehow, you know, I I got away with it for a couple weeks, I think. I really did. And then I don't know what happened. Somebody, they sniffed it out. They sniffed out that I was weird. So I don't remember thinking that coming to America. If anything, coming to America, I just felt like a state of crisis. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking anything aspirational. I was just trying to like hold on for dear life. My, my goal was just survival. But transferring to the school in Pakistan towards the end, the goal was I'll leave the weird behind and it did not work. So I think I understood going to college that this part of myself that I didn't like was not something I could shed. Why did you go to college in Iowa? Um, I mean, I was nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice. It's nice. I'm very glad I went to Iowa. Because like you said, my version of America came from movies and TV shows, and I didn't know America had different kinds of cities. Wait, <laughs> what did you think? Did you think you I were think going, going to college with the, the music man? I thought it was going to be New York or L.A. That's okay. all I'd seen. Where is the music man set? Iowa. Iowa. See, I didn't I didn't know that. So I was I was sort of surprised when I got there. I was like, this is not I don't see this America in movies and TV shows. I genuinely had But no like idea. literally, this is my question to you, Kumail. Literally, how did you get an application to a college? Like, did you have a sister that went there? Like, how on earth was that? I looked at the U.S. News and World Report, and I applied to like seven or eight colleges because it's expensive. And I sort of did, you know, my like moonshots, which were like, I I wanted to go to a liberal arts school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to like Dartmouth, Vassar, I think like Oberlin. I don't know. And I just looked at the rankings and picked like, okay, I'm going to do like a couple like super high 
a couple medium and then a couple that are like, really, definitely, I should get into these schools. And I think at that time, Grinnell was ranked either ninth or 13th. It might have been ninth in the world, uh, in America, in uh, liberal arts colleges. So I was like, okay, so I got my... I got my Vassar and I got my Dartmouth and then Grinnell is sort of the middle tier and then I got like, you know, tier two schools that I should really be able to get into. So that's what it was. Hamilton, I think I applied to Hamilton. All those sort of like small liberal arts schools and then also Dartmouth. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kumail Nanjiani. He's the star and co-creator of the Academy Award-nominated movie, The Big Sick. He's acted on TV shows like Silicon Valley, Portlandia, and Veep. And he is a Marvel superhero, for reals. His latest project is Welcome to Chippendales. It's a true crime miniseries that just wrapped up on Hulu. In it, Nanjiani stars as Steve Banerjee, creator of the Chippendales male dance troupe. Let's get back into our conversation. There's not a lot of people who change countries to go to liberal arts college. No, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I realized later it was because I kind of didn't feel like a person until, you know, until I decided I wanted to be a comedian. You didn't feel like a person? Yeah, I didn't feel like a person. I didn't feel... Like if someone was like, describe yourself, I don't think I'd be able to. I mean, I still kind of can't, but I just felt like I had nothing to me, you know? I liked movies, TV shows, and video games, and that was kind of it. And I didn't feel like I had any traits. And then it wasn't until college that I sort of realized that I had a personality and things that people may enjoy about me. Being a stand-up comedian, you really have to have a sense of who you are, but like you both have to have a sense of who you are and of what people see of you, Mm -hmm. both in the 10 minutes you're on stage and in the 15 seconds as you walk up to the microphone. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's very, very well said. And because it took me so long to figure out my own point of view as a human being, I would say the first few years of my stand-up, I didn't really have a point of view beyond a manufactured persona, which was, I was so nervous to get on stage that when I would go on stage early on, I would just play up that nervousness. And the only sort of point of view I had to my stand-up was, I don't want to be here right now. I had jokes that I'd written when I look back on those jokes. They were like, well done jokes. And they were, you know, they would do well with a crowd. I, I, I was lucky in that I didn't really have a bad set until I was a few months into stand-up. But they didn't really have a point of view beyond, I think this is funny. That's interesting because the first time I saw you do stand-up, you were already a reasonably successful comedian. But... One of the things that struck me and one of the things that I think of when I think of you performing stand-up is that you are performing ease, like conviviality. So you saw me, when would that have been? Because I remember... It was when you were doing the roller coasters. That was central to your act, was a chunk about roller coasters. So that was right around... (laughs) It's a good bit. I went to Coney Island recently. 
And I, uh, yeah, it's a fun place. I uh, rode this roller coaster called a cyclone. No, that was not my reaction. <laughs> the single most terrifying experience of my life. And I'm from Pakistan. <laughs> I had like bruises everywhere. I did, it's like I paid a guy like, here's a bunch of money, just kind of punch me all over. And then when I got done, when I got off, I found out that the cyclone is the oldest functional roller coaster in the world. Wish I'd known that before I risked my life. Do you know what year the cyclone was made in? The cyclone was made in the year 1927. They should change the name of that ride to 1927. Because that fact is way scarier than cyclones. I was kind of mad, honestly, at how funny you were. <laughs> <laughs> this was the sound of young America, right? Yeah. This was, I remember. In New York, yeah. Meeting you, you were very kind to me. It was when we met, I was sort of, I think, successful in the way of, I was doing kind of the sh cool shows in New York, but I was not making a living doing stand-up. I was barely making any money. Really, when I moved to New York is when my stand-up persona really shifted. And as you said, I started performing confidence and conviviality. That is really what happens. Before that, when I was in Chicago, my persona was very much like I wouldn't take the mic out of the stand, and it was very much like very small. My, my body would shrink couldn't make eye contact with anybody. I was performing nervousness, but there also was nervousness. And then I think it really, really changed because I found that persona was very limiting. I couldn't talk about anything personal. By that, I mean not just, I'm not talking about opening up my heart and revealing my deepest, darkest. I mean, I couldn't talk about a movie I'd seen that I liked. And I was like, oh, this is extremely limiting. I need to change. I need to be different on stage because I need to be able to talk about this Star Trek episode that I just watched that that tickled me, you know? At what point did you develop a vision? Because I don't think that you could be at the point that you are in your career right now accidentally or just based on the, you know, your talent and people lending you a hand. I mean, those things are central to anyone's success. But, like, you clearly have been trying. So... <laughs> When did you think, like, I am going to have goals? Oh, you mean like big sort of career goals? Or even small career goals. They were always like just the thing that's the next thing that's hard to get, you know? I've never had anything bigger. So when I was in Chicago, I wanted to do the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival or the Montreal Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. So it was just the next thing. When I moved to New York, it was, I want to be able to do Invite Them Up, which is Bobby Tisdale and Eugene Merman's show. I want to be able to open for, you know, my favorite comedians. And I did. I got to, like, tour with Eugene Merman and Zach Galifianakis and Stella. So it was always, like, just the next little step. And then it was like, I want to write for a TV show. And still to this day, it's the same thing. It's just like, what's the next little step that I can take that would be fun to do and could yield something that I might be proud of? I don't know if this answers your question, but it's basically just going to the next thing. There's no grand vision. I sort of have vague goals I want to achieve, but it's really about what's the next thing I could do that has a chance of being great 
and and something that I could bring something to. Along the way, you met your wife, Emily Gordon, uh, who is also with you, a producer on this show and who has written a lot with you, produced a lot of things that you've worked on. You know, the two of you are partners in a lot of creative endeavors. So Emily is both a, a former therapist with like a uniquely emotionally tuned view of the world, I would say, and like pretty focused, like high life skills. Yes. <laughs> um, so what did <laughs> what did being partners with Emily change about your life and career? Besides just, I mean, we're just going to leave love. Love is great. Love is great. Leave it behind. Yeah. Yeah. L- leave love off the table. That's like a good name for a collection of, you know, poems. Mm-hmm. By the way, she was like, are you going to do Bullseye? She's like, I wish. See, now that I would love to do with you. Because <laughs> she does not like doing press. And I'm always like, let's do it together. And she never wants to do it. She didn't know I was doing this. She's like, oh, see, now that I would love to do. I think it's emotional intelligence. A lot of emotional intelligence I've gotten from her. Um, the skills I've picked up from her, you said like she has high, what did you say? Like high life skills. She has high life skills. She's very competent. She is very competent. So picking up those competency tricks from her have helped me personally, but have also helped me professionally a lot. The way she approaches her work is very sort of workmanlike. You know, she has like hours and she goes in and sits down and writes every day and some days it's good and some days it's not. Uh, her approach to work is very simple. It, it, you know, when I back when I used to do a lot of stand-up, there were times where I was just waiting for inspiration to hit me and I realized that's a terrible way to, to work. You kind of have to work to work. And that's what she does. She's also helped me be a lot more intentional about my life. Sometimes I can sort of go on autopilot and just get pulled around by, you know, the things in my calendar. And she's the one who's sort of taught me that I need to do stuff that makes me feel like myself. Too often, I was just sort of doing stuff and I didn't I didn't even know if I was liking it or not liking it. I was just kind of going and going. And sometimes I would, my work would be too all-consuming. It's the only thing sometimes that would bring me any kind of satisfaction as a human being was was what I was doing. And she's taught me that it's much more important for me to get satisfaction from being a good husband and a good friend and a good, you know, cat dad and fix stuff around the house. So all this stuff, still a work in progress, but it's really learning from her has like recontextualized and reprioritized my entire life in every way, in my work and also my personal life. She's She's really good at living. She's good at being a person. You can tell when you talk to her, you're sort of a little in awe of how feet on the ground she seems. She's very, very together. And she, you know, that's sort of her function in all our various groups of friends, too. She's sort of the person who's like, all right, we're going to have a party, come over to our house, and then she will like sort of take care of everybody. That's what she's really, really good at. I don't want to speak about this too much because it's not my place to say it's hers. Over the years, we've been now married 15 years, together 16 years. Her level of competence is so high that at times I have taken for granted the effort that it takes her to have that level of competence all the time. And understanding more now that it is work 
to be that together makes me appreciate it more. Um, it is natural, but it comes with practice and actually being intentional about it. We talked about you enacting chill comfort on stage. Yes. You have also, since I've known you, gotten super yoked and started exercising all the time. Yes. To what portion of that is an enactment and what portion of it was organic in some way? The working out? Yeah. The faking it till you make it is like a specific thing that I decided is how I would approach stand-up. This working out now genuinely is really, it's for me and for nobody else. Like, honestly, if anything, I'm a little bit embarrassed sometimes at how I look because people make judgments about me. They think I've changed and all this stuff. If I could work out, honestly, if I could work out and look how I used to look five years ago, that'd be great. I just get so much out of the working out. I, at this point, don't get any kind of self-confidence or anything from looking differently than I used to look, you know, five years ago. That doesn't make me feel better mentally in any way. What I do get something out of is the actual physical act of working out every day. I get a lot out of it. So I worked out just before coming here, and it, like, made me feel better. I, I see the benefits of actually, like, lifting heavy weights over my head. It's sort of like a weird kind of meditation. One of the things that reading you talk about getting buff made me think of is the extent to which, as a cis dude, your appearance is certainly part of your life. It's not nothing. You know, like, there's a reason that a lot of comedians are goofy-looking in some way or, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we, yeah. have all, we have all grown up to you know, try and control our world in some way, partly because of our appearance. But I think it makes you realize the extent to which you are experiencing something that not just women in show business, but like all women in the entire world have to deal with all the time. Yes. You know, that feels very visceral. Yeah, I understand like point zero 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 one percent of what it feels like to be a woman in Hollywood and in the world at large, where you're sort of being judged by how you look. I understand like a very, 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 very tiny percentage of it, uh, for sure. How did having had this experience in recent years change the way that you looked at a show that's a story about the commodification of male bodies? Yeah, I mean... And it, you're pretty schlubby on the show. I am. I, I had to, again, change how I look for the show because I couldn't look like one of the dancers. I hadn't even really thought about that very much. What I've thought a lot about. No, really? Yeah. The commodification of the male form, being on a show about that. No, I, I really have put more thought into the women's reaction to it and what they got from it because that's what was really, that's what was really sort of not shocking, because it's not shocking, but it was sort of eye-opening. Because the actors who are dancers on the show really sort of owned it, in a way, and they liked being naked, or not naked, but like shirtless on camera. They really seemed to enjoy it. All of them did. 
And they look great. They should. And they really enjoyed, I think, performing for these women. And they enjoyed the reaction, at least from what I saw in my conversations with them. I actually talked to one of the actors, and he said it like gave him a lot more confidence in his life to hear the reaction, you know. And it wasn't the reaction that the background artists were having was not scripted. We didn't tell them to have this reaction. They had this reaction for real. It gave him more confidence, he said. But what was interesting to me when we were shooting that was the visceral glee that the women had in being able to express a part of themselves that they hadn't, that they, I don't think, feel comfortable expressing outside of the confines of this very specific situation. We'll finish up with Kumail Nanjiani after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Jay Keith, do you know what I love more than the trivia, comedy, and celebrity guests on our podcast? Go fact yourself. No, what, Helen? Sharing all of those things with an actual audience. Yes, well, lucky for you, Go Fact Yourself is back to being a live audience show. Woohoo! Yeah, we've got a free recording coming up on January 15th in Los Angeles and February 11th in Pasadena. And if you can't make it there, all of our recordings will still be available as a podcast. Twice a month, every month on MaximumFun.org. Yeah, no excuses. So if you're not listening, you can go fact yourself. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kumail Nanjiani from The Big Sick, Silicon Valley, and the new limited series, Welcome to Chippendales. Let's get back into our conversation. I really love the scene that we played at the beginning where your character is talking to his boss. I loved watching that scene. Your scene partner, the the guy who plays your boss, whose name I do not know, probably should have wrote down, um, is such a like lovely human dude on screen. And it might just be because there are so few sick guys on screen and he just is a striking visual presence with a big beard and everything. But also like that there is this like real weird human quality of these two kinds of things that the two of you want and him him just really trying to figure out your deal. Yeah, totally. I mean, what we wanted that scene to show is here's someone who has found success in America and is content with it. You know, there's a scene where it's um it's sort of told in montage, but there's a scene of him with his big family and they're all sitting around a table and eating. And you think, oh, this is what anybody in America would want, especially an immigrant. You know, there's a house that's his house. He's successful. He's feeding his family. And it's, it's a wonderful, lovely situation. And you, like your character, clearly is really enjoying the food. Yes, he's really enjoying it. But in that moment, I think he's also deciding this is not what I want, which I think is kind of heartbreaking. I'm not going to put too fine a point on it here, Kumail. But you, at some point, decided to go into the entertainment industry. Yeah. <laughs> which is uh, glitzier, substantially whiter. Yes. And, you know, I don't know that you were ever, I don't get the impression that you were ever in a lane where you were going to own a chain of, <laughs> of gas, gas stations. stations. But, like, you very well could have gone into, you know, programming at a nonprofit or something like that. Yeah. 
with your degree from the ninth best liberal arts college in America, according to U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. So, like, did you ever have that feeling of heartbreak that you knew that you were choosing something that was fundamentally not just being happy with your children and a nice meal that you or your partner cooked? Yeah, I think for me, you know, I didn't go into this industry wanting wild success because that's, it's ridiculous. Like if you look at the percentages, to want to be a comedian because you want to be rich is like, it's, it's an absolutely ridiculous thought to have. For me, it was really, I had the day job. I was a programmer in some way. I was terrible at it, and it brought me no joy. And the thought of doing something for 10 hours a day, every day, for the rest of my life, doing this, it just filled me with sadness and dread. I just could not do it. I was like, I can't spend 10 hours every day doing something that does absolutely zero for me. It wasn't that it was absolutely miserable. The work wasn't miserable, but I was miserable because I just found nothing from it. It gave me absolutely nothing. And I did work at, at a nonprofit because I was like, hey, I'm doing some good, but I think the day-to-day stuff you do has to actually give you some sort of satisfaction. I was getting nothing from it. And so when I chose stand-up comedy, I was like, I'd rather be someone who tours 40 weeks a year doing tiny clubs, barely making enough money to scrape by. I'd rather be doing that than be comfortable with a nice family and a big house doing this. So I didn't choose glitz and glamour. It's the opposite. I just chose being able to do something that that was enjoyable to me, that brought me some level of satisfaction. And there's also always a disappointment to anticipate in this business. It's not like... <laughs> oh, my God. There's a defeat around every corner. So, like, it's oh, yeah. it's not like you're constantly being rewarded by the feeling of your success. Like, there's no, oh. en- there's no end to relative unsuccess. Oh, yeah. I mean, just recently, you know, I was, I was sort of like, oh, things are going pretty well. You know, I've done this, uh, this thing, this thing. People know who I am. I'm sort of, I have so all these opportunities and stuff. And then just recently, you know, like, I haven't had to audition in a long time. And I was like having a meeting with this director about this big movie. And I was like, oh, great. Yeah, sure. Let's have this conversation. And then I don't want to have to audition. And uh, it'll be great. And then I talked to the director. We had a great conversation. And then they gave the job to somebody else. And I was like, wait, what? What's going on? And it sort of like really shook me. I haven't, you know, I haven't in a while. And it's sort of like, I didn't come to you. You came to me. You wanted to talk to me. And it wasn't even a movie I wanted to do that badly. But I was like, no, I'm the one who says no. You don't you don't say no. And I know how like arrogant that sounds, but there's always something that, you know, makes you feel like you're back at back at like step zero. And, and it is happening. It used to be that if an opportunity comes to you, it is yours. And you say no if you don't want to do it. But if it's coming to you, it's yours. But I found that's not always the case. And most recently, that was not what happened. I talked to someone, I didn't impress them enough, and somebody else got the job. I listened to you on Conan O'Brien's podcast, and you talked about 
how the very kind compliment that he paid to you was to say to you, I never worry about you. Yeah. And when he said that, I thought, well, I understand what he means because Kumail is so not just talented, but like a good at doing things, like good at making things happen and doing the hard work and those kinds of things. And like, I understand that part of it. But on the other hand, I was like, I worry about Kumail because I'm so happy that he's in movies and stuff. Like, what an amazing thing. Like, you never know what person you like and is talented is going to have outsized success. I'm like, isn't that great that Kumail is in, like, a movie? Like, look, there's Kumail Nanjiani in a movie. He's doing a great job, right? But, like, the part that I worry about is that, like, it's not that you're not going to eat. Like, you're such a great stand-up comic. You could be a stand-up comic until the day you die and make a perfectly good living, I'm sure. You know, it's a it's a trade. If you can work a club that's got 150 people in it, you can make a living. But, like, <laughs> I am worried because you try to do things. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. What if one of them doesn't work and then show business doesn't like him anymore? It's absolutely devastating every time you do something and it doesn't work, you know? It's because I don't ever do anything... Again, all this sounds like cliches, but it's absolutely true. Every time I work on something, I, I really put all of myself into it. I really, really care. I really give a shit. I work really hard at every single thing. And then sometimes they don't turn out well, and it's heartbreaking every time. So unlike an individual project micro level, each one is a potential devastation. And then you get enough of those heartbreaks in a row and suddenly there's the big heartbreak of, all right, back to, you know, the Des Moines funny bone. That's always there. I think about that all the time. And that does not give me any kind of solace or anything. The fact that I can like fall back and just do stand up and make a living, that doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> it's a terrifying thought. And I'm glad you said that because nobody says that to me. Nobody ever says that. Like, I think about that all the time. What if all this goes away? And people are like, you're being ridiculous. I'm like, I am not being ridiculous. It's That's a, very sensible. It probably will. Yeah. The I, odds are very good that it will. Of course. At some point, it's all going to go away. It's like, how long will you like be able to do this before it goes away? Well, Kamel, I'm genuinely so happy for the success you have had. It's just great. I just think it's great. And uh, I'm so happy that you were so successful in this show as well, because I thought you were wonderful in it. So... It's nice to see you, and thanks for coming by. Oh, thanks for having me again. Thank you. Kumail Nanjiani, welcome to Chippendales, the show in which he stars just aired its final episode. You can check out the whole thing now on Hulu. And if you only know Kumail as uh, a screen actor, it's one of the best comics out there, too. Uh, his special Beta Mail from 2013 is a really fantastic one. Absolutely worth the watch. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. This week here at my house was the week when we put the Christmas tree out on the curb and the trash people came and collected it. Thank you, City of Los Angeles. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. 
We get help booking from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. He and I are going to go see Brenton Wood and Barbara Mason next month in Long Beach. Our theme song is by the Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label, which is Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in any of those places. Follow us. We share all our interviews there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.